This is Bruce Friedman of Adult Site Broker, and welcome to Adult Site Broker Talk, where every week we interview one of the movers and shakers of the adult industry, and we give you a tip on buying and selling websites. This week we'll be talking to professor and author Edward Shorter. Adult Site Broker is proud to announce the launch of our new website at adultsitebroker.com. We've added some enhancements to the site, such as FAQs and a complete new platform. The look and feel of the new site are nice and up-to-date. The new site also has links to our marketplace and affiliate program. Plus, don't forget ASB Marketplace, the first platform where you can buy and sell adult sites and domains for free. ASB Marketplace allows buyers and sellers the chance to come together on properties that are valued below our company's minimum of $50,000. Don't pay for other marketplaces when ASB Marketplace gives you this service for free. Visit ASBMarketplace.com and sign up as a seller or as a buyer today. And of course, there's ASB Cash, the first affiliate program for an adult website brokerage where you can earn as much as 20% of our broker commission referring sellers and buyers to us at Adult Site Broker. Check out ASBCash.com for more details and to sign up. Now let's feature our property of the week that's for sale at Adult Site Broker. We're proud to offer for sale a growing and stable European tube network. The sites went online over 10 years ago, and the traffic has grown every year. All of the traffic is from SEO. No traffic has been purchased. This is a great opportunity for a potential buyer to add to the traffic immediately. Because of the high quality of the content, which is targeted to German and Italian languages, Google has placed the websites in good search positions. There are over 600,000 hosted videos. Around 400,000 of them are uniquely titled. There are also about six months of videos already translated and ready to upload, so the new owner will have an easy transition. This is an opportunity for the buyer to get stable traffic and easily grow if they put some effort into new SEO techniques and buy traffic. Now only $595,000. Next Monday on the Hanky Panky Podcast, Corlin Jewell will interview legendary porn performer Richard Pacheco, a.k.a. Howie Gordon. You can find the Hanky Panky Podcast at Hanky Panky podcast.com and wherever fine podcasts can be heard. Now time for this week's interview. My guest today on Adult Site Broker Talk is Professor Edward Shorter. Edward, thanks for being with us today on Adult Site Broker Talk. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Now, Edward Shorter has been studying sexuality for many years. His first book about it, written in the flesh, A History of Desire, won several awards. His new book, Stormy's World, is really volume two of that series, and it's about the adult entertainment industry as a pipeline into sexuality. Producers conceive themes to make money, and they have an exquisite sense of what the market wants. The book is a history of the adult entertainment industry from the early days to the present. It emphasizes the enormous increase in the availability of porn to a worldwide audience, the shift in themes from missionary position to every style of erotic activity imaginable, and from men in command to women increasingly playing an equal role. 
New themes include the explosion of fetish and role-playing in porn and the alignment of tastes among heterosexuals, gays, and lesbians. Toys and camming are not strictly pornography, but they have chapters as well. The book also discusses the recruitment of models and their treatment in the industry. The book closes on a note that finds adult increasingly female-friendly and approaching the status of mainline journalism. His next book in the series will be Porn Goes Global. He's a professor of history at a major North American university. Now, Edward, there have always been dirty pictures, as it were. What's new about porn? Uh, What's new about porn is that it turns into an industry. As you observe, there have always been dirty pictures going back to the walls of the cavemen. But (laughs) uh, you start to get uh, and a proper industry after the Second World War mm-hmm. uh, with uh, well, let me just back up for a second or sure. two porn, visual porn is much more exciting than uh, porn in print Sure. and because of freedom of the press there have always been dirty novels dime dreadfuls mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they couldn't really be prosecuted for uh, obscenity Right. And so that's what men in general usually read. They picked up these uh, dime dreadfuls and uh, got excited by them. Uh, they didn't have access to images because uh, sending images across state lines counted as obscenity. Hmm. And it would be prosecuted. The feds went after uh, pornographic uh, images uh, right up until... Supreme Court legislation said that uh, we're going to let community guidelines determine what is obscene. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, federal prosecutions of obscenity pretty well came to an end. So in the sort of uh, pre-federal obscenity days, mm-hmm. there were uh, producers, people uh, such as Russ Meyer, for example, mm-hmm. the immortal Mr. T's, 1959, shot in 35 rather than uh, eight millimeter. And going back to the 1920s, producers had shot uh, loops mm-hmm. in uh, eight millimeter, loops being things that you could go into the dirty bookstore and mm-hmm. view for a quarter of pop. Sure. And the quality was terrible. And of course, there was no audio, but, but at least they were better than print. So this kind of thing had always existed. And then late in the 1960s, early in the 1970s, Producers started making feature-length films, and they shot on 35 rather than 8, which is always a bit of a perilous undertaking because you don't know uh, until you uh, review the footage whether what you got on 35 was usable or not. This came to an end with the advent of monitors on uh, cameras in the 1980s. But 35 uh, was much better for use in movie theaters. And so the early industry shot uh, feature-length porn for movie industries. And this all, all this story begins in New York. And in New York, because basically that's where there were a lot of beautiful women and people willing to take chances on this new art form. Mm-hmm. And so people like Cecil Howard, for example, directed some early productions. Henri Pachard was uh, a well-known actor. Uh, Gloria Leonard. Candida Royal. These were all actors whose careers began in New York before moving out to the coast. Hmm. And there was a certain involvement 
with crime at this point as well. Uh, Al Goldstein, for example, was the editor of Screw magazine. Goldstein had all kinds of industry connections. Gerard mm. uh, Damiano, who produced Deep Throat, was financed by uh, a mobster, mm. Ruben Sturman, who was uh, an important distributor, had uh, heavy mafia connections. And then, uh, in, late in the 60s and in the 1970s, the uh, story moves to San Francisco. Mm. And it was Alex de Renzi who uh, brought to this country uh, the uh, hardcore porn film Porn in Denmark, because uh, he went over to Denmark and uh, bought it. And that is aired in the U.S. in 1970. And that would probably be the first really hardcore uh, feature-length porn film mm. uh, in San Francisco as well. There were the, the Mitchell brothers. Yes. Behind I grew up in I grew up in San Francisco, by the way, so I'm very well aware of the Mitchell brothers and their oh. and their and their sordid history. Oh, Keen, yeah. Well, one of the Mitchell brothers killed the other. Yes, I know. Uh, it, it is a sordid history. Uh, but then San Francisco turned out to be not ideal for a number of reasons, and so the straight hetero side of the industry moves from San Francisco down to L.A. to Chatsworth, which mm -hmm. is in Los Angeles County, but is not in L.A. as such. Right. And this is important because the L.A. cops were just deaf on obscenity mm. and they made life hell for people who tried to who tried to base themselves in L.A. Or oh, so that's why LA. that's why they ended up in Chatsworth. Wow. Well, that's one of the reasons. The other uh, reason for Chatsworth, rather than uh, some other uh, site in, well, such as California, uh, was that you had this huge pool of uh, filmmaking talent in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. The uh, makeup people, the camera people, uh, they were all in Hollywood for uh, the mainline industry. Mm -hmm. And they were happy to drive up to Chatsworth and Moonlight for a few extra bucks. Sure. And so that was really crucial in determining Chatsworth as a location. And so uh, Chatsworth and uh, there was a big uh, ranch nearby where not, uh, some shooting took place, became the epicenter in the late 1960s of uh, the porn industry. It was called the Iverson Ranch, actually. Did you know the, know the Iverson Ranch, uh, Bruce? I, I don't know a lot of this, and this, this is fascinating, so please go ahead oh, okay. go on. Cool. Well, um, and so uh, Chatsworth was not entirely virgin territory, so to speak, for porn. Uh, there had been uh, porn magazines that had been produced in Chatsworth from the 1950s on Milton uh, Luros was uh, an editor for uh, a couple of uh, adult magazines. And uh, and so in Chatsworth, feature-length porn film started to be produced. The uh, sadistic hypnotist is really the first feature-length hardcore porn, 1969, uh, Mona the Virgin Nymph, 1970. Mm -hmm. And it took off from there. Noel Bloom launched uh, Caballero, Caballero, Control in 1974. They were uh, big producers. Uh, and, and now some of the familiar names in porn start to appear in the screen uh, in Chatsworth. John Holmes, for example, sure. who was said to have this enormous uh, penis, 14 inches, yes. Marilyn Shakers, Sika, uh, and so on. Right. Uh, Irresistible, for example, featured them in 1980. 
Mm-hmm. So that sort of sets the background mm. for the creation of adult filming as a real industry. And mm. the inflection point here is the foundation in 1984 uh, by Stephen Hirsch, a vivid video. Right. And the story was that uh, his father, Fred Hirsch, had been an executive for Sturmer. And so that got gave Stephen a, a, a foot open into the industry door. Mm-hmm. And in 1984, he and a sidekick uh, founded Vivid Video. And that ter- Vivid turns into a big deal. Sure. And they produce uh, a lot of footage. And uh, they bring in, for example, uh, the practice of having Vivid Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate to call them girls, but that's the <laughs> standard. It's the young women who would become ex- models exclusively for Vivid, and they would get that would be a big career boost for them, and that would give Vivid a kind of uh, identification point for the public as well. In the 1980s, and the big migration from New York to the San Fernando Valley to Chatsworth begins, and some of the important figures that come out are uh, Ray Karch and Henri Pechard, and uh, the thing then uh, becomes a very substantial commercial opportunity, becomes a very substantial industry interesting wow now from your studies what do people find so appealing about porn what people find appealing about porn is that it enlarges the erotic imagination you don't reach adolescence with a big erotic imagination you don't know all the interesting things <laughs> out there to do right. what you basically learn in the backseat of somebody's car is the missionary position, maybe a hand job or a blow job. But that would be the end of it. But of course, adult sexuality is much richer than that. And people who become bored with the missionary position and want to expand the erotic imagination consume porn. Of course, they masturbate to it as well. It's this combination of new themes plus masturbation that drives forward the discovery of new themes. And porn is just filled with exciting new themes. And we can get into that uh, uh, in a bit if you want. Uh, but this is the basic motor, masturbation, fueling the uh, discovery of things like uh, anal intercourse, which mm-hmm. you don't discover in the backseat of somebody's car, <laughs> fueling uh, threesomes, fueling the whole world of uh, role-playing, as it's now called, uh, BDSM or SNM. Uh, which you definitely don't uh, get into as an adolescent, uh, golden showers. These are all themes that many adults find interesting and delightful, but they didn't know about. Right. They wouldn't have dreamed to them. They could be a lot of fun to be tied up or to tie somebody uh, else up and to flog them or to be flogged. Uh, this could be a really interesting kind of uh, erotic activity as opposed to Gestapo-like torture. This is what drives the story forward, all of these uh, expanding forms of sexual activity and the enthusiasm out there in the real world about discovering them. So, Edward, have there been changes in themes featured in adult films and sites such as fetish, role-playing, and anal? Oh, there have been big changes since the 1970s. Pre-1970, some of these things were unheard of being forced to do something, for example, as, as a man. Hmm. Uh, the scenario is that you are uh, submissive and you are uh, being dominated by a woman and she forces you to do things that you as, hey, a normal man, uh, would never do. 
such as to cross-dress as a woman or to have a homoerotic experience to uh, go down on another man. But she forces you to do this. Hmm. Now, in reality, these are things that you really long to do, <coughs> but you are just very reluctant to be upfront about, hey, I'd really like to go down on another man. No, uh, most uh, adult heterosexual men don't say that, but they will do it if they're forced to do it. And so the thrill here is the experience of domination, being dominated and being forced to do something that you otherwise wouldn't do. And so this whole world of BDSM, role-playing, uh, SNM, really opens up after the 1970s. Hmm. Of course, there had always been dominant uh, women uh, and catering to fetishistic tastes in men. That is not new. And women in leather, for example, goes back to the 1920s. But this turns into a whole sort of scene uh, after the 1970s as uh, BDSM becomes a major theme. And now, uh, regardless of the content of the particular uh, porn flick, it's unusual to find models who are not wearing boots. Hmm. And this, of course, would have been very much a kind of marginal taste before 1970s. Sure. There were booted women before the 70s, but this wasn't de rigueur as <laughs> uh, industry garb before in front of the camera. After the 1970s, uh, the booted uh, woman uh, becomes a, a standard kind of uh, trope in front of the camera, whether she's doing an actual uh, BDSM scene or not. So that shows the extent to which the sort of BDSM flavor comes to dominate the entire scene. Uh, but there are uh, other uh, new themes as well. The, this whole uh, business about domination and submission, although it existed before the 1970s, was never big in pre-modern porn. Mm -hmm. uh, it becomes huge after the 70s, and it goes very much hand-in-hand hand with the changing position of women in society. Uh, women uh, in the real world don't necessarily become dominant, but they become co-equal. They get mm -hmm. out of the subordinate positions that they were in for so many decades. And this is a natural expression of the, woman, of the woman's um, equality in the real world that uh, in bed she would uh, play the role of dominant as long as she has a partner who wants to be submissive. Mm -hmm. And in the real world as well, there are a lot of women now who wear leather as street garb. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know it turns men on. Uh, it makes them feel powerful. And hey, why not? They are powerful. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, this becomes a kind of uh, coloration that flavors the entire industry. Okay. So, a yeah. number of levels there are, are new themes. That's the basic point. Okay. Okay. Now, you talked about the changing uh, role of women in society. And you're right, they are powerful. We've got a woman as the uh, vice president of the United States. Do you think Kamala Harris has any leather uh, pants? I don't know. We'll have to ask her that. Um, anyway, um, how about adult models and how they present themselves? How does that relate to that? Well, adult uh, models. Is something that sounds glamorous to women in little towns in Arkansas. <laughs> Going out to Chatsworth and uh, having all kinds of high-powered sexual experiences, and hey, why not? You like to have sex. Uh, you have a bit of an exhibitionistic streak in you. So you get on the bus, and the bus uh, stops in Chatsworth, and <laughs> you get off, and you're 
a career in porn begins. Right. And this is something a lot of young women become quite excited about. Uh, and it's not that they're necessarily disillusioned. Uh, about a third of them, of the new recruits, get out of the industry after making, uh, after a couple of shoots, because they just don't like this kind of sex. There's no foreplay. Uh, they are having sex with men uh, whom they've never laid eyes on before. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are being choked out, for example, by uh, men who are actually strangers, although choking women out now is sort of uh, frowned on in the industry. But it, this yep. used to be not uncommon that uh, the male model would reach out and uh, choke the female right. as part of an expression of his dominance. Yes. And then uh, this became uh, viewed very poorly then in the industry, and it uh, went out of style. But there, there are lots of things about working in the industry that can turn women off. And so about a third of them quit because they don't like it. Mm-hmm. Now, a number of other women do stay around uh, for one reason, because the money can be fairly good. Yes. If you uh, shoot regularly, you will make a lot more than you would make working uh, in the fine and dime. Hmm. And as well, you have the possibility of moving from the front of the camera to the back. Yes. As a producer or a director or doing something else behind the camera. And behind the camera, there's a real kind of camaraderie a real social scene in which you become friendly with people. And if you come to feel yourself as part of a community and you don't necessarily feel part of a community as a model where uh, you don't have a lot of prestige for sure. There was a questionnaire a couple of years ago, uh, people in the industry would ask, would you like your daughter to go into the industry? And a number of people said, yeah, behind the camera, sure. Producer, director, doing some other uh, behind-the-camera function. Uh, why not? Nobody said that they wanted their daughters to become models. Right. And models have a very low social status, and uh, they try to uh, move out of that role as soon as they can, unless they are just spectacularly successful. There are these uh, women like Gloria Leonard, for example, or Candida Royale, who spent their lives in the industry and made a lot of money and became famous. So if you are the, the next candidate royal, then, hey, great. But most women are not. Sure, sure. Now, uh, obviously, porn was once considered to be anti-woman. Um, is it still that way in your view? For instance, we have female producers like Erica Lust. Uh, they've added greatly to the, to the female porn audience. No, I, th- I think for porn is definitely ceased to be anti-woman. There was a certain point at which uh, women were really uh, just uh, objects of male desire, let's say, who would lie there passively while the man did his thing, and that would be the end of the story. And there were a lot of guys who liked watching that because it uh, it was fun to watch, and they would themselves get off in their bathrooms. But it wasn't something that was empowering for women uh, in any way. And then women start, start getting involved on the production side. Right. Uh, Holly Randall, for example, mm-hmm. Nina Hartley, Girlfriends Films. These are all sort of names to conjure with for uh, if we're talking about women who are becoming empowered in porn mm-hmm. rather than just being passive objects as models. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, so that is one way in which porn has become female friendly. Right. A lot of women 
produce images that they know other women will respond to. Yes. Filming sexual activities that they know will turn on their female viewers. And that's the difference between female-produced porn and a lot of male-produced porn. Sure. Men don't have a big erotic imagination in, in, in the area of what turns women on. Of course, women know this implicitly. Sure. And so this is what gets women now into the business of producing porn. They're producing for other women. Right. And, and couples, I think. Yeah, sure, for couples. But if you're producing for couples, you're producing something that the female part of that couple is going to respond to. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and so this is very big today. Women as directors and producers, and even women as models, playing a dominant role, for example, in a BDSM scene. A lot of women like doing that. They respond to it. It means that they don't necessarily have to have sex. Not every woman in the world likes the idea of being penetrated by an anonymous male. But in BDSM, uh, there's not necessarily penetration. Right. The guy gets off responding in things for things like boot worship, nipple play. Right. Um, and so these are all themes that empower women mm -hmm. uh, behind the camera or indeed in, even in front of the camera if they're playing the role of uh, dominatrix in a way that's very different from just lying there and being penetrated by an anonymous male. Right, right. And of course, when you talk about women being empowered, uh, there's a shift in the entire industry when you talk about the clip and fan sites. Yeah, uh, these uh, uh, fan sites have uh, become a big business for sure. And a lot of those are uh, female-initiated uh, uh, videos that these, that these clips are taken from are female-initiated videos or videos in which women really are the main stars and the guy is very much secondary. Yeah, if there's guys, if there's guys in it at all, I mean, the the women have really taken the uh, the women the the well the models I should say because there's men too, but the models yeah. have really taken the power with these with these clip and uh, and fan sites. Yeah, that's for sure. And these uh, fan sites are heavily uh, interwoven with BDSM. There, uh, well, is, well, there's a lot of it. Yeah, there's a lot of it. Yeah, yeah it's a huge theme. It's not just uh, missionary position uh, penetration. Right, right. Yeah, or 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 just glamour shots, or just uh, you know nudity, or sometimes there's no nudity. Yeah, uh, anything in other words that might appeal to the male or female erotic imagination. Exactly. And you can. Uh, Buy a piece of a fan site for relatively little money. You don't have to subscribe to a, a service. There's no big in, uh, financial investment. Right. And it's, you know, it gives you enough time to get off. Exactly. Now, uh, obviously, gay porn is, is, is very big. What changes have you seen in gay porn over the years? A big theme in gay and lesbian porn is the convergence of taste with uh, hetero porn. And uh, one of the tastes that converges in gay and lesbian porn is fetish sure. uh, and domination. These are huge themes in gay porn, uh, the uh, leather man. And the leather man doesn't appear in gay porn until the 1960s. Hmm. Before the 1960s, there was, of course, gay porn, but it tended to portray gays as effeminate. That's why gays were once called 
Nances or Nancy, because the idea was that they would, in the gay bars, they would address each other as Nancy, and then go home and cross-dress, and they had uh, outfits that would let them uh, dress it up as women, basically. Uh, and this was the world of uh, gay sex before about the 1960s. And then Stonewall happened, 1968. Sure. And all of a sudden, the uh, leather clone appears on the scene, the muscular gay man uh, with uh, wearing a harness, uh, leather jeans, boots, anything but a Nance, anything but a queen. Hmm. And, uh, so it's, this is the uh, gay trope that has survived up until today. The uh, gay, gay man is identifying with the leather man uh, featuring fetish. Interestingly, the same thing seems to have happened within the lesbian community. Mm. Uh, within the lesbian uh, community, dominant submissive uh, was once a, a big theme. The submissives uh, dressing up sort of as little girls and the uh, dominant uh, butch lesbians dressing like workmen, looking tough, in other words. So that's a, that's a lesbian trope that goes way back in time. Mm -hmm. And then... This is a much more recent development in the lesbian community. But around the 1980s, lesbians start turning out in leather. The leather lesbian becomes uh, a kind of standard image. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a convergence with what's happening in the gay world. It's a convergence with what's happening in the hetero world, that they all are developing more or less the same sexual style. Right. Now, what about the transgender market? That's gotten very big. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, the transgender market is huge now, and transgender uh, porn is very popular uh, among people who are even thinking about transgendering. And why is that? Well, this is an interesting question, because this seems to start in adolescence, because in the schools today, uh, on the cusp of adolescence, lots of kids are starting to say, that they feel like uh, a male born inside a female body, or they feel like a female born inside a male body. Hmm. And this is becoming today almost epidemic. Now, uh, whether this corresponds to a real desire for uh, transgendering, or whether this is just a fad, remains to be seen. I think a lot of this is probably a fad, like the hula hoop. Uh, <laughs> it'll go away. But it's not all going to go away, because... Sure. Uh, there clearly is something in the human psyche that craves an alternative kind of sexual experience, alternative in the sense that you really are a woman born inside a male body, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, this was deeply, deeply tabooed before about the 1980s. And then it starts to take off. Uh, and uh, this is why transgender porn is such a big deal. Because guys and women who themselves have might thought only vaguely about some kind of transgender experience see some of this transgendered porn and say, hey, this is what I want. We talked earlier about expanding the sexual experience. This is an example of what we're talking about. Sure. Uh, you have only a vague inclination of some kind, and then you see it uh, con in concrete form in front of you on the screen. And you realize, hey, this is what I want. It's a transformative kind of experience that porn makes possible. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
like a lot of other experiences that uh, that porn makes possible. Um, like like you talked about. Now, talk about the shift away from Porn Valley to places like Vegas, Phoenix, other spots in the U.S. and all over the world. Now, obviously, the condom laws in California had something to do with that. Um, why else? I think one of the things that makes possible the migration of porn away from Chatsworth, away from the valley, is the development of uh, new technology. With a relatively small investment in a video camera, you can shoot production quality stuff, and you can do this anywhere in the world. You don't have to be in Porn Valley to do this. And if you are able to mobilize uh, a makeup artist uh, and a wardrobe consultant, and these people are everywhere, makeup artists are everywhere, if you can uh, get a, a couple of auxiliary personnel on your team, you can do you can shoot porn as easily in Romania as in Chatsworth. Sure. And you pay people a lot less. It's cheap to shoot porn in Romania. Cheaper, uh, yeah. you know, in Chatsworth it'd be a thousand bucks a pop for female talent. And it's much cheaper in Europe and not to say Latin America. So uh, the the ease of shooting is one theme. Another theme is that men and women like to see porn models, porn actors that they can identify with. And if you are in Bucharest, for example, and you see a couple of bunnies from San Diego on the screen, uh, that's okay. That's exciting to some extent for sure. Mm. But it's a lot more exciting if you know that they are from around the corner and if they're speaking Romanian. Sure. So this is a huge attraction. So we're talking now about mobilizing these new audiences in just about every part of the world, including places that officially are very anti-porn, such as China and India. Yeah. And Thailand. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I dare say. Yes, that's right. Thailand with the military government. Moving in the uh, direction of, enlarge, of enlarging their erotic horizons. This is a sort of universal human experience, universal human phenomenon that both men and women uh, feel the need of this kind of enlargement. And it's happening globally now, and it didn't used to happen globally. The typical uh, Indian male in the 1950s didn't really think a lot about enlarging his erotic horizons. But with the internet, with the fact that communication and uh, social media communication in general is globalizing, uh, this awareness of new erotic tastes is also being globalized. And I think that uh, this is what is driving this story internationally. Sure. Now, Edward, in your estimation, how hard is it to find people to work in the adult space these days? Every year, there's a new crop of 18-year-olds. Put it that way. Mm -hmm. You can't obviously work in the industry unless you're 18. But a whole new crop of young women turns 18 every year. And they find the idea of Modeling in front of the camera, kind of glamorous. Uh, the makeup, the outfits. Uh, you get to meet all kinds of interesting uh, new people that you wouldn't meet necessarily in Sleepy Valley, uh, Arkansas. <laughs> and so the thing, the whole thing appears very glamorous. And so there's never a shortage of models, even though the models may end up going to New York or, or going to Miami or Las Vegas rather than to. L.A. 
similarly, I mean, it's never hard to find people to work behind the camera as long as the money is right. Sure. Uh, so that's not really an issue. But if there's global competition now, then the money may not be right. If you have all these, if you have this variety of offerings out there coming from uh, Italy, coming uh, from uh, Peru, or coming from Miami, mm-hmm. the monopoly that Chatsworth used to have in producing porn uh, for top dollar has vanished. A very little porn is now shot in Chatsworth as mm. opposed to actually all of it 20 years ago. That's true. So, yeah. So, uh, I don't think that recruitment of talent is a big issue in the industry. The issue of competitiveness, uh, competing against people from Romania, is a big issue. Right, right. Yeah, a lot shot in uh, Czech Republic these days. That's a big market as well. Um, Now, models used to be, obviously, people in porn in general used to be degraded and looked down upon. Uh, What's your view about now? Well, uh, the models have started to fight back. They were degraded and looked down on and, and abused, quite frankly, physically abused. And now the industry uh, really is very much changing. The models have a union, for example. Hmm. Yeah. There are official codes of uh, conduct that are promulgated that uh, say uh, you may not be uh, violent with the models. You may not uh, abuse their human rights. Uh, you should let them know in advance what will be expected of them. Is anal involved or not? That's something models really do want to know uh, in advance. And there are formal contracts that are signed that stipulate exactly what is going to happen in the shoot. This is empowering for the models, and it's limiting for the directors and producers because it means that they can't go on and... uh, do whatever it is they really would like to do, or whether the model is given consent or not, she'll bloody well do it. But this business about she'll bloody well do it is is now over. Right. Now, what do you think would happen in the U.S. if a right-wing Republican Congress uh, came in? Do you think they'd bring in a lot of new anti-obscenity legislation? The uh, original obscenity legislation hasn't changed. It's still not legal to shoot things that are judged to be obscene by the courts. But the definition of obscenity has uh, narrowed dramatically so that we now consider community standards to be the determinant of what is obscene. And so it's not really the Congress that would have a role here. It's the executive office. It's the Department of Justice would suddenly start prosecuting for obscenity Mm -hmm. uh, things previously would not have been considered obscene. And uh, this could easily happen under a right-wing presidency. It didn't happen under Trump because he had no interest in this. Mm-hmm. Even though it, he said we've got to do something about porn, he wasn't interested in that at all. It wasn't part of his agenda. Mm-hmm. And he himself, he, I don't think he ever admitted to being a big porn consumer, but he probably was. No and, doubt. <laughs> uh, and he... Uh, had friends in the industry, it was just inconceivable that the DOJ under Trump was going to crack down on porn, and and they didn't. But if we get a new right-wing president, uh, he or she might be capable of ordering the DOJ to do something about porn, to start uh, looking at obscenity much more closely than they have been. 
Uh, and that would be bad news for the industry, for sure. No two ways about it. Now, how did you, being an ap- academic historian, get into this field? Well, I have always been uh, interested in social history, and that means the history of the family and so forth. The history of sexuality is part of the history of the family. Yep. And uh, decades ago, I wrote a book about the history of family life that became uh, well-known in the field. And I kept going back to the subject of the family and so forth. And uh, so it's just, if you are interested in sort of the nitty-gritty of social life in the family, you'll become interested in sexuality because that's one of the things that the family does, controls sexuality. And that then was what led me to write this general history of sexuality written in the flesh that came out, uh, I think, in uh, 2005. And the book was a big success because there had never previously been a history of sexuality. But the the book took things up to about 1970. Mm -hmm. And then it started to dawn on me after the book came out that things in the sexual world really were changing very dramatically. Oh, sure. Some of the changes, like uh, the advent of uh, BDSM, for example, or a leather fetish, as huge themes for uh, otherwise normal people, uh, or forced sexuality, males being forced to do this, forced to do that. That didn't exist before 1970. I, I certainly didn't mention it in the book. And I thought, well, you know, I think maybe it's time for me to take on the subject of recent changes in sexuality and to write about that. But how do you study that? And it was at that point that I discovered porn, Mm. that I realized that porn is a very real and immediate reflection of changing sexual tastes in the real world because uh, producers and directors want to produce stuff that sells. That's their bottom line. Of course. Uh, They want to make money out of this. And so they are very, very sensitive to changes in market tastes. Mm. And, and if certain elites in the market are now saying, hey, we'd like to see more in fetish or we'd like to see some more stuff on forced sexuality, they're going to start producing it. Sure. But, and this is in phase two, but once they start pouring out uh, BDSM or uh, <coughs> cross-dressing or whatever, mm-hmm. a lot of people out there in the real world are going to be exposed to these tastes for the first time. Yes. And they are going to respond very positively because, hey, it never even occurred to me that uh, male cross-dressing might be possible. Look at that guy. Uh, he's wearing stockings and high heels. Uh, and he's got on a corset. Mm-hmm. That could be kind of fun. There are a lot of men who find that kind of fun. There are a lot of prostitutes, for example, who have in their closets wigs and uh, high heels and large sizes, mm-hmm. uh, uh, hose that their male clients can put on. Yeah. And then the... Uh, prostitute, I hate the term prostitute, and then the escort or the um, provider, as we say today, and then Mm -hmm. the provider does their makeup for them. And then they go out and have a cup of coffee at a cafe. And for him, that's the highlight of the sexual experience, sitting there looking like a woman with uh, your dominant uh, supervisor in front of you. And, uh, And that's it. They don't have sex. There's no penetration. The guy doesn't get off. That was the core of the experience, hmm. the cross trip. These are tastes that are very much new. Nothing like this happened before uh, 1970. 
And it's been a very exciting experience for many men in particular. The examples that I've been using are sort of male examples. Sure. But there are female examples. For example, in the real world, about a third of all women have a real interest in bisexuality. Mm-hmm. And in the real world, the percentage of men with an interest in bisexuality is much smaller. Yes. So that means that you have this big pool of women with this these latent interest in bisexuality who will respond to female-produced videos featuring bisexual scenes. Yes. It's like girlfriends' films in Montreal, for example. Big time. Uh, it's going directly after that market, trying to get these latent bisexual women of whom there are an enormous number. So these are various ways in which uh, the market has exploded for porn. Well, Edward, it's been very, very interesting to to go through the history of uh, this business with you. I'd like to thank you for being our guest today on Adult Site Broker Talk, and I hope we'll get a chance to do this again real soon. Likewise, Bruce. Lovely talking with you. It's a pleasure. My broker tip today is part seven of how to buy an adult website. Last week, we talked about the agreement and escrow. So now you own the website. What do you do now? The first thing you should do is make sure you understand everything about the operation of the site. The previous owner will hopefully be available for a period of time to help you with this. As I mentioned last week, you should establish what the former owner's participation will be after the sale. You'll need to deal with production of new content, processing, paying affiliates, and many other things. If you don't have experience in these things, you may want to consider our general consulting firm, Adult Business Consulting. You can get more information on what this company does at adultbusinessconsulting.com. We help website owners project manage and guide them to the right vendors. Maybe the previous owner had all the right elements, processing, hosting, payments, production, scripts, etc., or maybe they didn't. We can help evaluate that for you. Let us know if we can help. Anyway, you'll now be operating the website. If you don't have someone like our general consulting company to help, evaluate all of those items and everything the site is spending money on and using to operate the website. Make sure you're getting a good deal and that these companies are providing the right service and check to see if you can do better. Hosting is a great example on something where people are often both overpaying and not getting the right service. Many times a server is just too slow. If you have any questions about any of this, feel free to reach out to us on our website. Next week, we'll talk about how to sell a website. And next week, we'll be talking to Philip of Quantalks. And that's it for this week's Adult Site Broker Talk. I'd once again like to thank my guest, Edward Shorter. Talk to you again next week on Adult Site Broker Talk. I'm Bruce Friedman.